we begin a brand new series called Redesigning Your Life. And you do it all the time. Apps get redesigned, aircraft get redesigned, cars get redesigned, kitchens get redesigned, all kinds of things get redesigned, and so can our lives. You know, whenever I'm a guest speaker somewhere, I always ask the pastor, how much time do I have? And I'll never forget when I asked a guy that once, I was preaching at the 11 o'clock service, and the pastor said, oh, dear brother, time means nothing here. We're spirit-filled, spirit-led church. You just let the Holy Spirit use you, but the people leave at 12. <laughs> so I'm always time conscious. In James chapter 5, if you want to look at it, beginning in verse 7, James writes these words, be patient. I didn't think I'd hear an amen on that. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and latter rains. Verse 8, you also be patient. I think he's trying to tell us something. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We consider those blessed who remain. Now, here's a synonym for patience. Steadfast. See, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. That's the word patience. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and how He is merciful. One of the weirdest things that could ever happen to an oyster is to have lodged within its shell a tiny grain of sand. Now, see, you're only going to hear this here on Sunday, right? You didn't know. You seafood lovers didn't know this. Typically, when that happens, and it happens a lot, 99.9% .9 of the times, that oyster can locate that grain of sand and expel it out of its shell and do the rest of the day what an oyster does, which I have no idea. But there are those rare moments when, try as the oyster may, it can't get rid of the grain of sand. And it's in a situation it can't get out of, and a circumstance it can't change, like some of you. And this oyster, when this happens, finds itself irritated, frustrated, exacerbated, and any other kind of unsanctified aided you can think of. It's about to lose its mind. It's in a situation it can't change, and it's at this moment something beautiful happens. It's as if this oyster kind of says to itself in oyster language, if I can't get out of this situation, I might as well make the most of it. So it finds this grain of sand and starts coating it over and over and over with a liquid milky substance that, ladies, when it solidifies, you will pay top dollar for. It's called a pearl. You know, all a pearl is at the end of the day is the fruit of a frustrated oyster. <laughs> the next time you girls put on your pearls, remind yourself, I'm wearing somebody's bad day. <laughs> and the truth is, if there were no irritation, frustration, or exacerbation, and if there was no sense of I'm about to lose it, there'd be no pearls. So I want to encourage everybody today that no matter where you are or where you are on the spiritual spectrum from you didn't know Jesus from a hole in the ground to I grew up in Sunday school hearing all about him since the earliest days of my life, 
You've been made in the image of God like we all have. I want you to know God has an assignment on your life. He wants to lift you up as a trophy of His grace, a pearl of great price. Psalms 139 says, all of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, we are God's workmanship created for good works. So God has created us on purpose for a purpose. Now, your mom and dad may not have planned you. One of the ways you tell is your closest sibling is a decade older than you. You were probably a surprise to them. But in the sovereignty of God, there are no surprises. On purpose, for a purpose. God wants to make us pearls. Now, our problem is this. While we love the destination, we hate the process. Because what's true in the natural for an oyster is true in our lives spiritually. There's no such thing as pearls without life's irritating, frustrating, exacerbating grains of sand. And our problem is we want to get to where we're going quick, fast, and in a hurry. We're Americans. But if you could take a walk through God's kitchen, you'd be shocked to find in His kitchen there are no microwaves, only crock pots. <laughs> Not crack pots, but we got those too. God says to you, you're here, and I want to move you here. I need to do a work with you and your character or your attitude. I want to take you to a place of fall-off-the-bone succulent faith. But in order for me to do it, I need you to serve a couple of tours of duty in my crock pot. I got to put you in there, put the lid on, turn the heat up, and put you in situation where degrees behind your name can't solve it, your social network can't fix it, the money in your bank account can't get you out of it. You're going to get mad at me, God says, but you're going to have to learn to trust me and lift up your eyes to the hills from where your help comes, knowing your help comes from the Lord. You're going to have to learn to be patient. Now, we're talking about redesigning our life. Greek scholars tell us if you were to analyze and compare the epistles in their original language, James has the highest concentration of imperatives. The idea of an imperative is a command. It's interesting, if you analyze James's epistle in the original language, he talks in these commands. It's one command after another command. In fact, the whole book begins with count it all joy. I mean, right out of the gate, he grabs you by the throat, he looks you right in the eye, and he says, count it all joy. And then he says, be patient. And you want to slap him. But that's what God says. Now, he's not recommending here. He's not suggesting. He's not giving us tweetable advice to consider. He's commanding. You don't learn patience in an air-conditioned, cushioned pew. You don't. You don't learn patience when your health is good. You don't learn patience when you get a rare season, when the kids are being compliant. You don't learn patience when your career is moving in an upward trajectory, money's flowing in. You know, prosperity and success is a lousy teacher. Bill Gates said one time, it seduces smart people into thinking they can't lose. You don't learn then, right? You only learn patience when, for example, you said, I do, and you figured you could get pregnant on your own timetable, and here you are half a decade later dealing with issues of infertility with a barren womb and a broken heart. You only learn patience when you wake up one morning and you feel a lump in your breast. You go to the doctor, they run some tests, and you're diagnosed with breast cancer. What? Me? 
You only learned patience, men, when you just thought it was your annual physical, and a few days later, the doctor calls back saying, your PSA is elevated, we want to run some more tests, and then you hear that dreaded phrase, prostate cancer, and just like that, you're scheduling surgeries. You only learn patience when you're in that prolonged season of singleness, and you really want to get married. Anybody in here want to get married? Okay, I got a few. You've been praying about it. And once again, you've got to put on one of those hideous bridesmaid dresses and stand at the altar for somebody else. And I know what you're thinking when you're standing there. She's not even as cute as me, and she's getting married ahead of me. <laughs> the goal of singleness isn't marriage. You need to know why there are a lot of single people who want to get married. There are a lot of married people who want to be single. <laughs> I hope your wife ain't with you, brother, back there. I don't know. You only learn patience when you tried your best to raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and now they're out in a far country doing God knows what with God knows who. You've had to reach the conclusion that yelling isn't helping, threats aren't doing any good, and the best parenting I can do is to just parent on my knees waiting on God. The reasons, this is good to know, the reasons we Christians never ever pray for patience is because we are theologically sophisticated and astute enough to know that embedded in that request for patience is another request that says, God, put me in something I don't like. <laughs> yeah, we want Scripture, Romans 5, verse 3. Tribulation works patience. Oh, Lord, I need more patience. Okay, more trouble. <laughs> I'm not praying that prayer, okay? And I suggest you don't either, see? I I'm not dumb. I'm not a genius, but I'm I know better than that because the only way I can develop patience is with some tribulation. Anybody got some tribulation going on? Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, good. Welcome to the old crock pot. <laughs> See, I need to understand that God is after a lot more than my comfort and my happiness. He's after His glory and my good, your good. You, you keep inhaling and exhaling, and I tell you what, folks, all of us will do several tours of duty in God's divine crock pot. You know, what does patience look like, Rick? Well, James tells us. If you want a picture of what patience looks like, verse 7, he says, look at the farmer. No farmer goes to a barren field before harvest season, looks down at the barren ground and looks up to God and says, God, in the name of Jesus, I command corn right now. God, I'm waiting on you to do it. <laughs> that ain't going to work, right? You know that. The farmer goes to a barren field, and he plows, and he plows, and he plows, and he sows, and he sows, and he cultivates day in and day out with back-breaking work, and does all of that under one fundamental principle. Unless God sends the rain, my labor is in vain. It's as if the farmer says, I'm going to do my something while I wait on God to do his something, knowing when God puts his something to my something, now we have something. See? So the farmer teaches us that patience is never passive resignation where I just sit around and twiddle my thumbs. It's active participation. It's doing all that I can do with what I have where I am. Let me pause a minute. If you go to a restaurant, don't you expect someone to wait on your table? Waiting on the table is not smoking out in the kitchen while you're waiting on somebody to wait on you. 
Waiting on the Lord means I'm serving in, in a, an aggressive action with what I can do, where I am in the situation I am, until God shows up and does His thing. It is not, I'm waiting on the Lord. No, you're just lazy. Waiting on the Lord means I'm serving. I mean, you can find Osama bin Laden faster than you can get some waitresses, and they still want 20%. I think it was Tim Powell that told me, what is, you've heard of tips? It means to ensure proper service. You don't get 20% for just throwing my plate down. You're supposed to serve the table. Well, that's what God says. Wait on the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay, it's not sitting in a pew hoping, you know, that pixie dust will fall on you and something will happen. I remember a flight to London several years ago. And as we approached Heathrow Airport, we got an unexpected aerial tour of London, just going around and around in big circles. And I remember across the aisle from me was a well-dressed business guy who was verbally upset we weren't going to land on time for his meeting. And he couldn't understand why the pilot didn't put the thing down so he could get to his meeting. But air traffic control, ATC, could see what he couldn't see that the airspace was too crowded over Heathrow, and it was a safety issue. Have you ever found yourself maybe now in a holding pattern? Oh, it sucks. It really does. You're just going around and around, and it doesn't seem like anything's happening. I wish there were a couple people here who weren't so spiritual that they could say, Rick, I've actually found myself frustrated with God. Land the plane, God. I'm ready to get pregnant. Land the plane, God. I'm ready to be done with this health issue. Land the plane, God, and bring back that rebellious child. Land the plane, God, get me that job. Land the plane, God, in my marriage. Now, you need to know that God sits up high, looks down low. He sees what you and I don't see, and He knows what you and I don't know. My grandmother used to say of God, He may not come, Ricky, when you want Him to, but He's always on time. I hated that. I still hate that. He's never early, but he's never late. You know, once in a while, I just wish he'd show up early. Surprise. Typically, that doesn't happen. I love this. James says, while you're in a holding pattern, don't grumble. James is writing to some ethnic Jews who have recently converted to Christianity. And I promise you, the first thing those ethnic Jews think about when they read that verse 9 and see the word grumble is they go all the way back to their forefathers in the Exodus. And remember, that's where all their forefathers murmured and murmured and grumbled and grumbled. And what happened? You know that originally on their itinerary, the trip from Egypt to Canaan shouldn't have taken much more than 11, 12 days. But because of their murmuring and grumble, it turned into a 40-year holding pattern. It's like God was saying, guys, we should have been there 39 years and 50 weeks ago. But because you keep complaining and you're a victim and you're passive, I've had to lengthen your tour of duty in the crock pot. You're not ready. And if you're telling me how long you've been in the crock pot, it might tell me something about you. Yeah, 40 years? Whoa. I wonder if God's saying that to somebody here today or online. You know, God is saying, hey, Jack, we should have been off this page, out of this chapter, and into the next book. But you got a bad attitude. There's no joy. All you do is murmur. And James is telling us in verse 9, just because you're in a crock pot doesn't mean you're patient. 
You can be in a crock pot and still be impatient. Patience is about your attitude. You know, we don't need old people. We need patriarchs and matriarchs. Big difference. And if you're a seasoned saint, you don't have the market cornered on grumbling and complaining. We understand that. But a patriarch or a matriarch is an individual who's leveraged their odometer in their journey with Jesus through life, and they're investing it down into future generations, inspiring them in their journey with God for a time that that patriarch or matriarch won't live to see. That's the next generation. We got a lot of life experiences in here. And that means if you're a seasoned saint and you got your AARP card, you ought to be holding court at a restaurant, at your house, or some breakfast joint with young adults or somebody beating down your door to take notes and get some wisdom. You should have learned something. What not to do? What I did do that did work. People can learn from that, and you can save them a, a lifetime of, of real problems. They're going to have their own, but you can save, save them a lot of trouble by just getting wisdom. The Bible says, I know I'm spirit-filled, I'm a charismatic, uh, la, 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 la. But he says the most important thing, get wisdom. Wisdom is the chief thing. And it's available to everybody. I mean, some of you are in a place, I want to say, like Dr. Phil, and how's that working for you? You've been through three husbands, how's that working for you? You reckon you have some responsibility in this? You've been fired from four jobs, hello? You're always there. Must be some connection. I mean, I want to talk to people, but oh, I'm pastor. I can't talk like that. Some of you just need a good bottom kicking to say, wake up, Sparky. God's not a problem. You're the problem. If nobody ever asked you for wisdom, it could be because your attitude sucks. No joy, just bitter, grumbling, complaining, victimization, and it's not cute. And nobody likes it. James writes in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We consider those blessed who remained steadfast or patient. You have heard of the patience of Job. So James says, when you find yourself in life's crock pot, sit with a leader, sort things out with a counselor. If you have to, lean into community. But James says in verse 10, don't forget the prophets, they're your patience posters. The prophets are God's divine show and tell for His patience with you and me. Get to know Ezekiel. God says to Zeke, my people just don't get it, how patient I am with them. They're not understanding my immutability, my unchangeableness, and the fact that I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, Zeke, I want to use you as a visual demonstration of how profoundly patient I am. So, Zeke, here's what we're going to do. Strip down naked. Lay on your left side. Now, if you were Zeke, you'd be saying, say what? Where's that in the Bible? <laughs> Ezekiel's saying, oh, okay, how long I got to do this? God says, oh, 390 days. Don't move. Why? Because that's how patient I am with my people. Let this sink in. You are here today because God is incredibly patient with you and me. If God ever gets impatient with you, you're done. Uh-huh. Some of you need to be a little more patient and not rev up your engine every time 
somebody disagrees with you or you don't get your way. I just, patient, dial down, brother, chill. See, God says to Hosea, here's another prophet. Hosea, I got a problem on my hands. I married Israel, my bride, and she keeps cheating on me by committing spiritual adultery. Now I have a right to divorce her, but I want to show her how patient I am. Hosea, I know you're single. You just got out of seminary. You just got called a pastor of that church. I got a bride picked out for you. And I imagine Hosea saying, oh, yeah. Okay, God, what's her name? And God says, her name is Gomer. Now, I'm not smiling anymore because I had never met a hot Gomer in my life. I'm sorry if your name is Gomer. Anyway, he says, oh, and by the way, she's a prostitute. Yeah, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, when she cheats on you, I, don't, I want you to go get her. Don't wipe your hands clean of her because every time you cheat on me, that's what I do with you. I'm patient. Folks, that's the grace of God. That is good news for us, right? Then there's a Michael Jordan of patience. James writes, you have heard of the faithfulness of Job and the patience of Job. See, I don't care how big or how long your crock pot is, it's got nothing on Job. In Job chapter 1, he loses everything. He goes to the funeral, 10 caskets, each casket holding one of his children. I can't imagine that. Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. He's covered from head to toe with boils. His wife is chirping in his ear, curse God and die. Interesting, the devil left her. (laughs) Well, I mean... He must have known something. All right. So what does he have the audacity to say in Job 19? For I know that my Redeemer lives. Something he knows. Job teaches us that when you go through tough times, let what you know about God from Scripture trump how you feel about God. Amen? Yeah, my feelings come and go, but what is true in Scripture of God never changes. And I have to rely on that no matter what I'm feeling. Then he ends by saying, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. So there is a purpose to about everything we go through. There is purpose to affliction. There's purpose to that wayward child. There is purpose to the unemployment. There have been times in my life for all of my theological learning, I didn't like a problem and I pitched a fit. Anybody but me? But you're the pastor. I'm a human. I don't have some Iron Man suit I put on, and now I'm unflawed. That would be nice. But at some point, I have to say when I settle down, well, I'm here. I can't change it. How can I turn this into a pearl? How can I make the best of a nasty situation? See, growing up, my grandmother had an annoying hobby. It was called cross-stitching. Cross-stitching involves taking a piece of cloth and weaving the threads in and out of it. And if you've ever watched somebody cross-stitch as I would lay on the floor, look up. All you can see are hanging threads, no reason, rhyme, or rhythm to it. But whenever I got to see it from the top down, I saw a completely different picture. I saw order and beauty and form taking place. Years later, I reflected on that and it dawned on me, isn't that the problem with life? Perspective. All we see are the dangling threads around us with no apparent rhyme or reason, 
But God is saying, if you could sit down next to me, you'd see that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you sat down next to me, you would say with Joseph, who after years, 17 years in a crock pot, when faced with his brothers who betrayed him, could say in Genesis 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He didn't know that at first, but he learned that in the crock pot. God is saying, you're going to have to trust me. I'm up to something in your life. Be patient. And I don't know how you can do that without God's power and God's grace. Sometimes we hear the Word of God, and God's Word says His Word will never return void. It's always a good word. But then there are those special times you hear God's Word, and it's what the Bible calls a word in season. It's right where I am at that given moment. And I'm not here to embarrass anybody, but there are people in here today and watching online, and you've heard that word, and it's a word in season, and it's right where you are at this moment. You're in the crock pot, and I want to pray for you. I'm going to ask everybody, just bow your head, and if that is you in this crock pot right now, just slip a hand up and let me know it's you. Just slip it up all over this room. Yeah, all over this room. There's a lot of cooking going on in here, and I want to pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are going through. I don't need to know what it is they're going through, but you know. And you know because Psalms 8 says, what is man? You are mindful of him. God, you are mindful of every one of us. You said in the Sermon on the Mount that not a single sparrow falls to the ground. You don't know about it. You know about the health issues. You know about the anxiety somebody's dealing with, awaiting a test result medically. You know what's going on with that child. You know about the longings with a career and the longings with a relationship. You know about the financial situation. You know about the hell somebody's going through in a marriage. And not only that, you go on to say, and the son of man that you care for him, not only do you know, but you actually care. So we rebuke the enemy right now who would seek to whisper in your ear and your spirit saying, God doesn't really care about me. That is a lie. God cares deeply. Just whisper that into your spirit right now. God cares for me. He does. And Father, I close by quoting your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you wish, and it shall be done for you. Bring back that wayward child then. In the season of infertility, heal that sickness, Lord. Grant that job. Replenish the finances. In that season of loneliness, Speak into that marriage that's been derailed. God, show up. But in the meantime, while we're in the crock pot, give us the strength to be patient and not to grumble, but to have a positive attitude to be filled with joy, knowing you care and you're mindful of us. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.